0: Welcome to Reading with Joy. This summer, we're reading Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, a book about a man who lives in a house that loves him. So get yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. I staggered and almost fell. I felt dizzy, parched, breathless. I looked up at the statues on the walls of the vestibule. Water, I told them hoarsely, bring me a drink of water. But they were only statues, and they could not bring me water. They could only look down on me with calm nobility. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy. We are on part four of Piranesi, and uh, it's been such a delight to read this book with everyone. And I am at the recording process, of course, always comes a little before the release process, so. Now I'm starting to see everyone's thoughts and engagements with this book. And it's just such a pleasure to discuss this with you all and see your thoughts. And I always, my experience of a book has always deepened. And I always think that it's a great con that I have somehow managed to get, you know, several thousand people to talk about books that I like with me. But more particularly, I'm excited to talk with a friend today on the podcast about part 416. I'm delighted to Welcome Matthew Rothus Mosier uh, to the show. And uh, Matthew is an assistant professor at the Honors College in Azusa Pacific University in California, which I will admit was the rival to my undergrad at Biola. So I think it's a beautiful Christian thing that we can have a friendship together. So welcome to the show, Matthew.
1: Thanks, Joy. It's great to be here.
0: Before we dive into this week's chapter, which is so important and to me, so sad, before we dive into all of that, uh, would you like to give a little more of a portrait of who you are and what you care about and where you are?
1: Sure. I am a theologian by discipline, and I am a great lover and fanboy of Dante. I've actually been on this podcast with Joy talking at length about Dante uh, just last year. My wife and I just relocated from the East Coast to the West Coast. So we're making all of those adjustments to the California lifestyle, which has included getting sunburned while sitting outside, rereading this section of Piranesi oh. and enjoying it so much that I forgot my aversion to the <laughs> Southern Californian sun.
0: Oh, excellent. Yes, Matthew has been on the podcast actually twice before. Because we did the, oh, I can't remember what we called it. We did one on love in Dante. And then we, you also were on the podcast last year, for Wrinkle in Time, because that yes. was also a book that you enjoyed as a kid. Yes. So you are an easy person. We always have to actually limit ourselves. I feel like we could always go longer than would be reasonable for a podcast talking about these things. And you and I are both saying today that there are actually some kind of Dantean notes in this chapter and in a character we're introduced to.
1: I think so. Absolutely. So it'll, be,
0: it'll be good. So, Matthew, how did you first discover Piranesi? And what was your first experience of reading it?
1: Yeah, this has become a very special book to me in the, the nine months since I, I read it. So I read it last fall. Uh, we had just moved across the country to a place where we had no family and no friends, the Azusa Pacific University where I, where I worked decided that it was going to have to be online for the entire year. So I never left my house. The condo that we were renting was not an easy living situation due to our neighbors and uh, misadventures with our neighbors. It was very small. Los Angeles County went into a pretty intense lockdown around November. So I was very, very isolated for months. And very lonely. And I hadn't really been able to get into any fiction for about a year. I'd just been reading nonfiction, which is wonderful, but it always feels like there's part of my, my soul that's missing when I'm not reading some fiction. But I just hadn't been able to pick something up. I would read a chapter or two and, and it just wouldn't stick. But so I found the one place in my apartment where I could kind of escape the difficult living situation from my neighbors. And I started reading this, this book and I was about 20 pages in and I realized I realized that this is a book that I'm probably going to read for the rest of my life. Like mm-hmm. it's going to be a staple of my life going forward. And then by the time I got to this section that we're talking about, part four, 16, I realized, well, I'm not going to be able to put this book down until I finish it, and so I just read the entire thing um, in a 24-hour period because I just could not, could not let it go. So it just became a, a book that really found me, as I think it found a lot of readers in this state of isolation, the state of loneliness, and a time where the meaning of the word house and home was kind of changing and taking on these new layers of meaning, some some good, some bad. And yeah, I felt like it was one of those books that expanded my soul, even though my world was getting smaller and smaller and smaller.
0: Yeah, I felt very similarly. And I was just saying to Andy Crouch last week and his kids that something that's interesting to me about this book is that it kind of creates evangelists for it. People read it and there's not for everyone, but for a lot of people, there's something kind of fundamental and empathetic about it, that they feel that it understands them and they understand it and there's something important in it. And I do think it also was just, one of my friends likes to call it literary providence when you find Mm -hmm. a book at the right time and it just seems to meet you. And I think this book met people, met a whole moment of people as we were all isolated, as we were all, as you said, inside the house. It did that. It It was a vast, kind of universal literary providence. And in a funny way, I think being able to read it and talk about it this summer has almost felt like a resolution. Not a resolution, but you know, it's hard to move on from these years and you know, who knows if we're on our way out, but it kind of seems like we're on our way out. And so being able to talk about this book, which for many people was tied up with that experience of isolation, has been a kind of poetic justice to the year in ways that I have really appreciated. I also will say that I have had numerous people say that they got to a certain point and just had to read the whole thing. And I've even had people say that in the comments this first week where they're like, oops, I read the whole book. And I think Joel and I had the same thing where we were kind of like, doop, 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 going along. And then you get, I think it's really to this chapter. And then you're just like, I have to finish it. You know, I, you can't stop. So I'm really excited to talk about, about this chapter. I always try to give a quick summary of what happens in the chapter. Each section in the book is named after a character, really, which is interesting, of course, because we have one chapter is called The Wave. So that should bring up some interesting questions in your mind. But each chapter is named after a character. And each chapter, we kind of begin by meeting someone new. And in this chapter, we meet 16. Now, of course, Piranesi has had this anticipation of he has a lot of emotional energy invested in the dead that he takes care of. And he Tends their bones. It's kind of a, however you want to phrase it, a natural or primitive religion that he kind of has a sense of the importance of people who come before him. And the other has been his one other human contact, of course, blast with him at the prophet, but they're both kind of, you know, nasty to just unpleasant people. And so suddenly in this chapter, he encounters an entirely new individual, and this is sixteen whom he spends a good deal of the time thinking is a man and then has this wonderful realization at one point QB's, that it's a woman. And it's shown that the other has been hiding this from him because he feels that he'll be a romantic about it and won't realize that, you know, actually this person is trying to kill him. And, of course, the other has this whole narrative that 16 is, he's telling Piranesi that he's going to, you know, destroy him and make him go mad and that he needs to avoid him at all costs. But Sixteen has this kind of aura of curiosity for Piranesi, and he is both repelled and drawn in. And I just have to find it really quickly because it just makes me laugh so much when he, when he writes her the, this note where he says, Dear Sixteen, the other has warned me of how you would tend to make me mad. But in order to make me mad, you must first find me. And how will you do that? The answer is you will not. I know every niche of these halls, every apes, every place to hide. Return to your own halls, 16, and reflect on your wickedness. And then he goes in this hall, <laughs> which is just so adorable and funny, even while it's very severe. And then he goes in this whole kind of like, he can't decide whether he should sign it your friend, but that doesn't seem right, or your enemy, but that seems unnecessarily confrontational. And so he signs it, Paranasi, this being what the other calls me, but I do not think it is my name. So that's kind of the drama of this whole chapter is seeing, smelling, smelling 16, being kind of confused about his desire to counter, to know, to communicate, while also feeling like if he reads um, these messages that it will it will make him go crazy. Then we have, um, this is a very rambling um, summary, but then we also, in this chapter, he realizes that there's going to be a great flood that will destroy everything in its path and he tells the other and the other is kind of nonchalant about it and then he becomes concerned that he needs to to help Sixteen even though he's supposedly his enemy and then he begins to read his journals and we learn a lot about Lawrence Arndt's sales and then near the very end we have this experience where Sixteen writes are you Matthew Rose Sorensen And he has this kind of breakdown because he realizes somewhere inside of him that he is. And so that's what happens. And on the whole kind of arc of this, and we could talk more about these things, there's also this increasing alienation from the house, but I'm going to pause before we get into any of that. Uh, Did I leave anything out, Matt?
1: I think that's a good summary. I do think that we get a lot of world building happening here. The world outside question mark Mm -hmm. of the house Mm -hmm. with what's going on with these journals and what story is being kind of told in these journals that he's kind of building back, right? He has all of these fragments of paper that he's found scattered throughout that he's starting to stitch together into a kind of coherent story. And it's almost like the restructuring of his memory, of memory Mm -hmm. and and of identity. And there are Mm -hmm. certain kind of crises, internal crises that come with that. And I I love the way that the internal drama of his memory and identity plays with the external drama of 16 has now entered the story. And Mm -hmm. then there's also gonna be this great flood. So there's all of these kind of crisis moments that emerge Mm -hmm. in this section in part four.
0: I remember, this is a, a funny analogy to make, but when I was reading Harry Potter, Harry Potter really gets real, if you want to put it that way. In the, is it the Goblet of Fire? Yeah. Yep. You know, that's like stuff gets real. And this is the place where I feel like it's getting real for Paranasi. It's funny, I, well, let me begin by saying this. What were some of the kind of themes or, or things that stuck out to you that you feel are important to discuss?
1: I think there are a lot of themes that have come up already in the the podcast series about isolation you have Mm -hmm. both this internal and this external isolation Mm -hmm. you have these journals where he's learning about the research that somebody did maybe him maybe he did into this idea of isolation from the world right this Mm -hmm. literal disenchantment that Arn sales talks about and then there's also this isolation Mm -hmm. from himself this kind of emerges from the crisis of hearing his his name, the Matthew Rose mm. Sorensen. There's these themes of kindness, his mm. draw to 16 and his desire to kind of protect mm. her and the other. One of the, the themes that really stood out to me, not just in this section, but in the whole book, is the importance of names and naming. Mm. And how important that is for knowing and loving something.
0: Mm. In this
1: world, in the house. Because Piranesi is always treating even abstract terms as proper names, right? 16, Mm. it's a number, it's not a name, but it becomes the name through which he does direct address.
0: Mm. And
1: it's his way of personalizing, of even humanizing Mm. his world, And then you have the contrast where the other gives him this name. He takes his name away first. He takes the Matthew Mm -hmm. Rose Sorensen name away. And then he gives him this other name of Piranesi as a joke, right? As a personal joke at his expense. And it strikes me that the other does this. He gives a name in order to depersonalize, to dehumanize, so that he can do whatever mysterious things that he's doing which of course we'll we'll find out more about later so there's such a marked contrast Mm -hmm. in how names are used Mm -hmm. and i feel like the way that Piranesi, or i'll call him matthew because i I tend to like that name um Mm -hmm. names other things as as ways of truly understanding it right the house isn't something to be manipulated it's something to be known and loved and participated in Mm. naming becomes that that way of kindness and of mutuality and of dialogue Mm. that you Mm. talked about in the first episode janet saskis talks about in her kindness Mm. of god book so central to what we as Christians hold to be true, like we have that scene in Exodus three, where God gives God's name to Moses, mm-hmm. and it just establishes this mutuality that plays out throughout the entire scriptures. So that that was a theme that really, really kind of hit me over the head as I was reading this and rereading it.
0: Yeah, and I think something that stands out to me in that as well is that names can be used either for kindness or alienation and this chapter really brings both of those themes it kind of makes them explicit because we're reading about this as you said the the research yeah and it's interesting when i was speaking about kindness in the first episode i was thinking about there's a little book it's a popular book you know a little pop theology called god has a name and it talks about god's revelation to moses and then how how we have this, this phrase that's said over and over about God, which is God is full of loving kindness enduring generation after generation. And that there's this sense that in giving a name, we are invited not just to kind of relate in a way that is transactional, but in a way that is relational. And that is, mm-hmm. and that that name has to do with this phrase that actually is kindness. And so this is the very nature of our relationship with God is personal, that we can call God by a name. That's wild. But also that that name is connected to the idea of kindness. I keep on saying this in podcasts and eventually I will actually do the podcast where I've talked about this. But I've been reading a little bit of Jung for future podcast reasons. And Jung has this whole thing about naming where he says names are interesting because they occupy a kind of ambiguous space. They can be either intimately personal or alienating, right? Because when in one sense, a name is the most public thing about you. It's the thing that everyone has access to. Everyone knows on the internet that my name is joy, you know, but to be called by someone who loves you and knows you by your name is a precious and profoundly intimate thing. Mm-hmm. And there, there's this strange relationship between naming where it can either be alienating or it can draw you close. It makes me think also of Le Mis, right? That there's this kind of pole, you know, the famous scene where he says, you know, he's not Prisoner 24601, he's Jean Valjean, and that insistence upon the name, which is my name, which has to do with my identity. But I think something that is interesting that you pulled out is that for Piranesi, even words that aren't like beautiful names are important to him and are can be a medium or a way to express intimacy and closeness. So one thing I was going to pull out here is when he, and this kind of leads us back into the question about alienation from the world and that whole question. After he's read some about Lawrence Her- Lawrence Her-Sale's kind of descriptions of the world and stuff, he pauses and he's reflecting on it, and he says one sentence puzzles me: "The world." And this he has it. It's small, so it's just W O R L D. You're nodding. Um, the world was constantly speaking to ancient man. I do not understand why this sentence is in the past tense. The world and it's capitalized still speaks to me every day. And I thought that was so you could miss it very easily, but I thought it was so significant that the way that Lawrence Arn sales understands it is the world lowercase. Just, it's a thing. It's a name for a dead thing that I don't relate to. Whereas for Piranesi, and you'll notice that throughout the book, he capitalizes what seemed to us to be random things, right? The house, the, I think there's part where he says the wind, uh, the waters, there are these capitalized things, but I think that's indication for Paranasi of this sense of naming it as something he has a relationship with.
1: Right. Right. It's so different from the idea of like naming and claiming something, right. Exerting this kind of mastery Mm -hmm. over it, right. This Cartesian idea of becoming the master and the possessor of nature, Whereas for Piranesi, it's much more about entering into this mutuality of friendship, even, right? Or almost like parenting, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm a beloved child of the house, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of language of like the house is something that I'm in relationship with. It dotes on me. It cares for me. uh, It provides for me and and things like that. And and you see it seeping into his consciousness as a character... That even when he's writing one of his messages to 16, you you read it earlier, his first impulse is to sign it as your friend. And then he has <laughs> to kind of talk himself out of it. I was like, well, that's not really right. But it just shows the way that he has learned to be disposed to the world.
0: Mm. Even
1: these people that are heinous threats to him, his kind of first impulse is... Friendship.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then he even considers, well, enemy? Mm -hmm. Nah, it's overly aggressive. (laughs) And so, you know, there's such a a deep kind of innocence to this character that he wills the good even for his enemies Mm -hmm. or his perceived enemies. And there's this wonderful moment on it's on 158. He's kind of having a bit of a fantasy about what kind of message he will get in return from 16 and he imagines two different replies from her so the first is the top of 158 dear Piranesi you are right today I will return to my own hall sincerely 16 but then at the bottom he's like what I would really want is 16 to write something like this dear Piranesi reading your useful and informative messages I've come to realize that if only I were to cast off my wickedness, then we could be friends. Let us meet and talk. I promise not to make you mad in return. Will you teach me how to be not wicked? Hopefully 16. It's just an absolutely revealing, I think depiction of what a disposition of love and friendship towards the world is that his first impulse, even of his enemies is to make them into friends right and to will the good Mm -hmm. and this is why i'm sure we'll talk about this more in a minute why he even sets out to warn her of the great flood that's Mm -hmm. coming
0: yeah well and it just all goes back to that sense of kinship it reminds me also i feel like we can't talk about names without talking about genesis and about how you know adam is invited to name the animals And it's funny because I've heard that taught in various ways throughout my theological education. You know, some people use it as this kind of way to say, well, this was, you know, now man has dominion by which they mean kind of the capacity to control or whatever. But I think more traditionally that's understood as kind of, I just always loved it poetically of imagining God inviting Adam to explore this new world in which he belongs and to look for and long for to see all these good companions, but then to be introduced to the idea that he needs someone who is like him, someone that is his kind. And I feel like that's kind of a similar, people talked a lot about the similarities to the kind of pre-fall nature of Paranesia that he seems almost like an Edenic or Andy Crouch said last night, he's almost a unfallen, like he has fallen, unfallen, you know, this sense of the sweetness and this innocence and just how, Naming goes into that. And then when, when Adam finally sees Eve, he names her out of this deep delight to have discovered the kin that he longed for. Yeah. And I think, I think that's beautiful, but, and that relates to this great flood, right? So he starts, he realizes there's this big flood and he tells the other, the other seems kind of not overly excited about it, not too bothered by it, but He immediately, as you said, his impulse is to warn 16, to want her to be safe, even though he's considering her as an enemy. And what did you say earlier when I was mentioning this? What is his reason that he's so intrigued by 16? He says, do you have there?
1: Yeah. When he's first confronting the other about how the other lied to him and said, well, you didn't tell me that 16 was a woman. And the other in the kind of demeaning, condescending way that only the other could say, like, well, you're a romantic. I know you. I was doing that for your own protection because I didn't want you to fall in love with her. And Piranesi is then later reflecting is like, I wasn't so much intrigued by her because she was a woman, but because she was just another human being. Mm. And the other isn't always a great Companion. You may maybe, be shocked to know this. Right. You may be shocked to realize this. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, he sees here's another one of my kind. And that's mm-hmm. where the longing kind of comes in. And so, therefore, because she's another one of my kind, I have this, in a sense, a, a kind of naive obligation to her of kindness. I don't want her to be affected by this this great flood, this convergence of four of the four seas.
0: Mm. But that leads him to through a series of events, this kind of gradual experience of disorientation and alienation. So, We get a lot of info about the past or the outside, as you said, and I think what's so interesting about the story is it's an unreliable narrator, but usually when you read an unreliable narrator, it's someone who's trying to deceive you as a reader. So like, you know, I don't want to get this away, but there's a very famous Agatha Christie that's written from an unreliable narrator, and at the end of the book, you realize that the unreliable narrator is the murderer. And so you've been, you have been deceived because that's what the narrator is trying to do. But in this sense, we have the sense that Piranesi is an unreliable narrator, but it's not out of any desire to deceive us. He's actually trying to piece together his own memory. And we're starting to get the feeling that the reason that he can't remember things has something to do with the house and the place that he's in. And that this has come from, that it all has to do with Lawrence Arn Sales, this researcher. And here we get this really clear depiction of the Barfieldian, or however you want to say that, idea of original participation, of alienation from nature, and that Sales was always trying to get it back and to reclaim it. And, you know, we had that section just spread where Piranesi says, but the world still speaks. I, it speaks to me every day. So we get that externalized. But then what we also start seeing is we have this crisis, this moment when he realizes that he is Matthew Rose Sorensen. And it creates this identity crisis for him because he says at first, why does it matter what my name is? I am a beloved child of the house. Does anything else matter? And we see that as kind of this return to this childlike posture of knowing things in the world. But then in this moment of great grief, he starts to kind of disintegrate. And in that disintegration, when he's beginning to remember who he is, the world stops being porous for him in that opening section that I read, he he calls out for comfort from the statues who before this time have been the sources of his comfort and inspiration. And all of a sudden they are to him just statues. And so we have this kind of, oh, when I read it this last time, of course I've read it before, but I almost teared up. I was sitting overlooking the ocean because it was a beautiful day when I was rereading. And I happen to be listening to this song that just over and over again, this is very kind of atmospheric. And it said, to be safe and free. And I was reading this as Piranesi is suddenly realizing that he is neither safe nor free. And that this cuts off his relationship with the house. And it's so painful and poignant because we know that Piranesi needs to wise up in a certain sense. We're concerned for him. We feel that he's not safe. But then to see him suddenly lose, to see the world kind of begin to grow gray for him is a real sadness. You know?
1: Yeah. There's a couple of different things in that one line or two sentences that you read. They were only statues and they could not bring me water. They could only, and then it was this phrase that jumped out at me, only look down on me with calm nobility. So there Mm. is this, shift not only in his perception of the world but also in a sense of the world's perception of him like Mm. the relationship has been disrupted and now they're looking down on him and Mm. they're looking at him it's just this kind of strict observational rather than this mutual this mutuality so yeah it's this kind of fall Mm. from this innocence and this this mutuality and this relationship both on his side they were only statues mm-hmm. but also in his perception of of how they relate to him looking down at him mm-hmm. you know yeah. calm nobility so something kind of aloof something removed from him and yeah oh man there's was- so many things that i just had to stop myself from saying because it gives away too much of the next section all right i'm gonna I'm just going to that.
0: That's the hardest part of doing these episodes. Um, it reminded me of one of my favorite poems by Sylvia Plath called A Black Rook and Rainy Weather. And she's speaking about looking. I'll, I'll actually just read part of it. She says, on the stiff twig up there, hunches a wet black rook, arranging and rearranging its feathers in the rain. I do not expect a miracle or an accident to set the sight on fire in my eye nor seek any more In the desultory weather, some design. But let spotted leaves fall as they fall without ceremony or portent. Now, the thing that strikes me about this is that this is like the opposite of Piranesi's point of view, right? He always expects ceremony and portent. He always expects backtalk from the sky. So she she says this, but then she kind of describes, and I won't read the whole thing, but suddenly seeing a certain minor light can leap incandescent. Uh, And so she expresses this kind of moment of profound meaning which contrasts with, and she says that it gives her a brief respite from fear of total neutrality. And I feel like that is what Piranesi experiences for the first time in this, is this fear of total neutrality, the fear that there isn't reciprocity between him and the world, that the statues are only statues, or if they're anything, they're looking down on him with, with dread. And I think part of the reason it's so impactful is that we've all had moments of that fear of total neutrality of not knowing that the world could care about us or knowing that God cared about us or knowing other people feeling very much alone in kind of the shell of our own self. And yeah, that's why I found this passage so heartrending and perfectly kind of put, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and I think what's so telling about it is that it, it emerges from this, this crisis of a kind of crisis of knowledge, right? He gets his his name back and it throws him into this, this tailspin. You quoted a poet, so I'll, I'll, I'll quote a poet. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me of Lord Byron's kind of tragic line about how the tree of knowledge is not that of life. Mm-hmm. He has this moment where his knowledge kind of disrupts his his happy way of existing. And so the question will be, will he be able to merge knowledge yes. and life?
0: Can he reintegrate? Re,
1: yeah, redemptively. Um,
0: well, and I, I wanted to point out, kind of going back to those themes of alienation and kindness, that for Barfield, the goal wasn't just, as I talked about with Malcolm Kite, the goal wasn't just original participation he thought that actually there was kind of a need for maturity that we needed to be able to conceive of ourselves as individuals before we could enter into communion so for him the ideal was final participation and that's what we hope for when we read Piranesi's moment in this is we realize that he's kind of coming to this realization of identity but we want to believe or hope that this could mean he might be able to return this doesn't just mean a loss of meaning you know we want to hope that this could return to a a final participation in which he can experience communion with the world while also being an individual. And I think that's where 16 comes in because there is this draw, you know, he finds himself battling between thinking she's an enemy, but also wanting to know her and to be close to her. And I have just intuitively in my mind thought of her as Beatrice in Dante as this kind of character that meets him and is inviting him to a better place. Did you think that as you were reading?
1: I did. And this actually fits pretty nicely with the themes of names and naming. Because when in the Divine Comedy, Dante, the character is on this journey towards God, but he's first led by the poet Virgil, who's going to take him to his kind of poetic love and muse Beatrice, and she's going finish, to finish guiding Dante to God, and you expect when Dante and Beatrice reunite in the Garden of Eden, it's going to be this kind of romantically charged scene. And really, Beatrice just kind of stands as moral judge of Dante. And one of the most telling things is Dante is having this kind of like self-pitying moment. And he hears Beatrice's voice from across these rivers in Eden. And she says, Dante. And it's the only time that he's named in the entire divine comedy.
0: Hmm. Wow.
1: And it's a significant moment. And it's a moment of crisis of it's a, a moment of you've been one way for the first half of this story. If you want to proceed into the second half of the story, you have to undergo a kind of transformation. You have to actually confront who you are. And it's this idea of being named that calls him to this kind of attention that provides a, a crisis, an opportunity for change and, and transformation. And I, I think here we have sixteen giving Piranesi his name, and it creates this this crisis moment. And this, I mean, we're a little past the middle of the book, but again, we we have this who is he going to become in the second half of the story now that he has this moment of being named?
0: Mm. Oh, I hadn't realized how, how specific it was, but you're so right. She gives him this name. It creates a moment of crisis that maybe pushes him back to thinking about who he really is. And, but we need that to happen, right? You know, we would be, we wouldn't really care about Matthew if we didn't want him to be safe and want him to know what was true. And so even while we feel a sadness as he's experiencing this alienation and this disruption, we're beginning to think that maybe 16 has his best in mind. And by giving him his name back, maybe she's calling him towards safety and towards some kind of reintegration. One of the most striking scenes to me from this whole book, and I remembered it, I would just kind of, it would come to me when I'd be thinking about it is the scene where he smells. That's the first thing he smells her. And he talks about the differences between each of their scents and and how one's more kind of oily and harsh. But hers is beautiful. And he thinks, how could Sixteen be evil if her scent was so beautiful? And that was a really striking thing to me in this chapter as well.
1: She smells of lemon, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Lemon and flowers, if I remember right.
1: Yeah. Right. So even there you have... The image of of garden and fruits and and flowers and the kind of promise and the the homeliness of of that in contrast to the other and the prophet and the kind of harshness of their sounds and and even the way that he sees her from a distance interacting with like the birds when the birds are bothering her <laughs> but she talks to them right she kind mm-hmm. of tells them them off but she's engaged in relationship mm. with the house in that way, which you never see. I don't think you ever really see the other or the prophet doing that.
0: Quite it's true. Way. Also a very brief aside, I am enjoying in the second read or third read through whatever this is for me. I'm enjoying reading all the descriptions of the other suits. They're <laughs> very detailed and he sounds like a very fashionable dude, which I think we get a sense of in some of the descriptions too. Yeah. Well, well, do you have any final thoughts as we kind of start getting towards the end of this?
1: I have one, just a little silly thing, and then one more serious thing. There is a wonderful Doctor Who reference buried in this chapter. Is there? It's on page one sixty-five. He's going through the bibliography mm-hmm. in his notebooks, and one of the entries is "Timey Wimey," uh, <laughs> Stephen Moffat. Link. So there's there's a nice little Doctor Who I, reference. I, I if that, there yeah. if there are any Whovians listening oh, to yeah. this the other thing that i think is really significant going forward into the story is the top of 163 and this is in the middle of of the kind of alienation that he's feeling from the house and feeling from himself after hearing this name or as he puts it three words that make up a name matthew rose sorensen
0: mm-hmm.
1: he says i am the beloved child of the house yes Immediately, I felt calmer. Was any other identity even necessary? I did not think that it was. And then he kind of goes on. And so it, it seems like this is the crisis point of can he integrate these various identities? Piranesi, Matthew Rose Sorensen, the beloved child of the house. And who he is going to become, if, at least for me as a reader, is what really gripped me and became the well, I need to figure out who this guy is going to become in the, the second half of this book. And that's what kept me going as a reader. And I think that this scene is very critical for the finale of the book. And in in fact, even the last the last journal entry of the book. So I encourage your listeners to keep this in mind as Mm -hmm. they get to those final pages, because I I think it's a a really, really magnificent payoff.
0: Mm. I think so too. And I think you're right, that this is kind of where we, we suddenly have these, this tension of who he's going to become. And I think for me, the reason that it is so compelling is I think many of us to some degree can kind of feel these different bits of our own selves wrestling within us. You know, there's a part of us that would like to believe and know that we are the beloved child of the house, whatever that means in our world, whether that's being a beloved child of God or having the sense that life is meaningful and that we do have kinship with other human beings, that we're a part of something good and profound and rooted. And then parts of ourselves that can feel more alienated that have encountered real, because we're beginning to see that the prophet and the other really are real evil, real selfishness, real alienation, that it's not fake. And I think part of the reason we care so much about Piranesi is we want for him to be able to find kindness in the world. We want for him, for it to be true, that he is a beloved child of the house. And that this isn't just a projection into the world. That this isn't just his perspective, but that somehow it's actually true. And I think that's kind of the question that this chapter sets up is, will it be possible? And the great grief to me is, you know, that in the previous chapter when he encounters this Christ of identity, he looks to the house and in this one, he can't as much, but we we have hope that perhaps something often, and, and this is often the case in life, in the very scent of another human being, of someone who is of his kind, someone who may even show him kindness might lead him to a place of integration. But there also seems like there's a lot that's going to happen before then, so hold your breath. Tell me what you think of the chapter, everyone go comment on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Also, I want to emphasize to you all to comment on other people's comments so that there is discussion, because that is the best thing. And I look forward to seeing this story unfold. Thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. It's been wonderful to chat with you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was so much fun.
0: So much fun, and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. So, thanks everyone for listening. Go tell me what you think of part four of 16 and what you think will become of Matthew Rose Sorensen.